Gospel of John, chapter 2, this morning. I'm picking up where we left off last week. John the Baptist has uh, introduced Jesus uh, there in the area of the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized. And the Gospel of John doesn't discuss it, but then from there, Jesus. Uh, was led of the Spirit to go out into the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights. And uh, during that time, he was tempted or tested by uh, Satan. And uh, after that, uh, we don't know for sure just exactly where or how, but he, uh, uh, as it says here in verse 1 of chapter 2, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And so uh, Cana, uh, they don't know exact, uh, the exact location of it, but it's in the general area of Nazareth up, uh, to the west of the Sea of Galilee. And so he, Jesus got there from the desert, that uh, would have been down toward the Dead Sea. So it, uh, maybe it was three days after he left there. We, you know, we don't know, but uh, it was the third day after something <laughs> that he was um, at this wedding. And uh, the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. I have to, uh, it's just part of my nature, I have to ask questions and and try to get in my mind this picture. Um, When you realistically look at it, God was invited to the wedding. I mean, I could just stop right there. That's just totally blows me away that they could just have and the bride and groom probably thought this is just a normal just nothing exciting about it except that we're in love with each other and or or at least we hope they were and and gonna get married and when they ran out of wine that would have been the most embarrassing thing uh at a Jewish wedding to have run out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, meaning said to Jesus, they have no wine. I can sort of picture her coming over and whispering in his ear, they have no wine. They run out, kind of panicky. And Jesus said to her, woman, and and today, if you addressed your mother that way, it might not be considered very respectful. But in that day, it was a very endearing way to speak to your mother, uh, woman. And that's how Jesus addresses her. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? In other words, you're concerned over the fact that they've run out of wine. No big deal. What does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Meaning, 
the time, Jesus is saying, the time for me to reveal to the nation Israel who I am and what my purpose for being here, that time hasn't come yet. I I shouldn't be intervening, you know, getting involved. I shouldn't be doing anything here. And his mother said, it's like, you know, she just didn't hear a word he said. He just, she just turns to the, the uh, servants and says, whatever he says to you, do it. Something um, about Mary and Jesus' relationship, even at this point, she already knew that he was able to do something because she instructed, whatever he says do, do it. Just do it. Verse 6, now there were... Uh, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now, it doesn't really say that they were totally empty or half full or two-thirds full, but they had the water in them that was used <coughs> for uh, ceremonial um, different functions that had to do with the wedding, uh, cleansing uh, ceremonial rites. And it was very important uh, for washing of hands and, and various things that they did. It had nothing to do with the law, uh, but it was ceremonies that they would perform religiously uh, and you understand there's a huge difference between doing something that God has uh, commanded us to do and just doing something because it's tradition it's religious it's something that uh, we in our culture think we should do well that's the nature of those water pots because um, when you really look at it if it was a law of God that you had to have that water there Jesus would never have broken the law and turned it into wine and so it was just a a ritualistic thing that was there and he points to it and he said to him in verse 7 fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim so they did exactly what Jesus had told them to do. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then that which is inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. And so in that process, the water 
without Jesus even saying anything. He, we, we don't read that he spoke to the water pots or the water or anything. He, he just said, take some out and take it to the master of the feast. And um, in the process, it was made into wine, but not only made into wine, it was made into the best uh, because it was better than what they had previously been serving. And this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Um, John calls this, uh, the author here of the Gospel of John, refers to this as uh, signs. And following this, there are seven other signs in the Gospel of John that he points to that as Jesus performs them, he is, is uh, illustrating or giving a sign to the nation Israel of who he is. And in this one, and the, uh, the others, we have to guess uh, what attribute of himself he's trying to, uh, trying to display. But here it says in verse 11 that he manifested or revealed his glory. And evidently there's something hidden here that, that we can't see. But uh, in that process... Those people recognize there is, there is something very glorious, not powerful, not, um, not of the other things you might would say of Jesus, but his glory. And the glory of God in the Old Testament was associated with Mount Sinai. Uh, the first time we saw it where the uh, bright light by day on that mountain, the cloud by by day, and that also followed the camp of Israel around the 40 days of wandering in the wilderness. And that cloud and that light, uh, that's referred to as the Shekinah glory of God. And there was one other time in the life of Jesus that it refers to this this glory, and that was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And uh, it speaks of a cloud there. And then uh, the uh, various ones from the Old Testament appeared, and Jesus was talking to them and all. And that's referred to his glory. And I find it very interesting that it says here, that he revealed his glory through the changing of water into wine. Now, there's there is something about that I'm missing. I, I don't, I really don't. When I look at the Mount of Transfiguration, I get it. When I look at Mount Sinai, the giving of the law and God's presence there, I get it. And whenever they built the tabernacles, the Shekinah glory of God entered the tabernacle, telling or displaying to the people that his presence was there. Um, I, I don't, there's something hidden here, but I have to take this at its word that 
uh, he manifested his glory through this sign. Now, as a pastor, I look at this and I really, really wish there was four or five more verses here because this has been argued over since, since the day it happened, I think, over whether we as Christians should be drinking wine or not. And people will point and say, well, Jesus was called a wine-bibber. He, after all, he, he changed the water into wine, so it must be okay. And then you point to all of the other verses that say it's not okay. Bottom line is, um, we're not going to settle that argument. <laughs> we're just not going to. Um, I can offer some advice that if that's a choice that you make, that you choose to, in the evening, drink a little bit of wine, um, I really don't see anything wrong with it. Although in my life, I have chosen not to. Um, I used to. I really liked uh, Coors beer. And after I got saved, I... The Lord, I went and bought some, thinking, you know, drink a little bit this evening. And I opened the first bottle, and it just tasted just flat and terrible. And so I poured it out, opened another, and, and same thing. And I, I was doing everything wrong. I was driving from Valentine, Texas to Marfa. So when I got to Marfa, I stopped in and bought another six-pack. Because the other one I thought was flat. Opened this up and it tasted the same way. And then it dawned on me, because I had recently gotten saved, that God changed my taste buds. It wasn't flat at all. He just took away the... And I, I decided, well, I don't need it anyway. Uh, for the first time in my life, I'd go to a country western dance and I'd remember everything that happened the next morning. <laughs> and, and I actually had fun. And... Uh, Everybody else is all, you know, the hangover. And what happened? Well, simple. You drank too much. So my advice would be, if you can find it in yourself, don't drink. Just don't. That's the best. But if you choose to, just do it in moderation. Uh, just a little. Uh, when Paul told Timothy to drink a little bit for his uh, stomach's sake, he, he didn't say go drink a whole barrel full. He just said drink a little, just a little for your stomach's sake. So that's my uh, spill on that. And Jesus, evidently, he drank wine uh, from all indications. Uh, you don't get called a wine bibber if you never touched it. You know, I'm not accused of being a beer drinker nowadays. That's just anybody that knows me would know that. 
You can't get away with calling him that. You can call me a lot of other things, but not that, because I don't do that. Well, they called Jesus a wine bearer probably because he drank a little wine around. And uh, he was certainly present here and made this. So uh, anyway, moving on, um, verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. Capernaum is a town kind of on the north and western edge of the Sea of Galilee. And we'll find later in the ministry of Jesus that he kind of hangs out in that area. It was it seemed to be a favorite uh, general area for Jesus there on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen, and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. Uh, what was going on as the uh, people would come uh, from all over Israel, and a lot of folks would even come from outside of Israel on this occasion at the, of the Passover, and they were going to uh, come to worship God and to be there at the time of the uh, sacrifice for uh, the atonement of the sins of the whole nation and to offer sacrifices themselves. But you can see the problem that would exist of trying to bring your own sheep or goat or uh, calf or something from a great distance away. So they just bring money, currency, knowing that once they got there, they could go in and buy whatever it was. If they were real poor, they could buy uh, a dove. If they, and depending on what they were doing, if it was a trespass offering, peace offering, or a sin offering as to whether it would be a goat, a sheep, a bull, or just what, and they, uh, they would buy what they needed. But before they could just buy it, you, the, the currency exchange in the temple was temple currency. So you had to go to the money changers and say if you were from another country, well then you had to change it into the currency of Israel and then go to the next temple and change it from that to the temple currency. Each time you made a, an exchange, they would gouge you. And then you finally had the temple currency, you could go buy your lamb or whatever. Well, you know, the, the lamb may have actually been worth, say, $2, but they charge you 8 just because they knew they could do it and get by with it, and they knew that you would pay. And Jesus walks in, and he sees all of this going on. And mind you, nothing wrong with providing that service, but they were gouging the people, the people who were poor anyway. And, and, and it was being done in the name of worship of God. And so... 
he gets angry. And we read here that, uh, verse 15, when he had made a whip of cords. Uh, some of the old translations says that he actually plaited a whip of cords. Now, this tells me quite a lot because I don't know if you've plaited anything before, but there's several steps in the process. You've got to secure the cords first. And it doesn't say if these were of rawhide leather or some kind of rope or what, but depending on what the cords were, you might have to plait from really small stuff to make a cord. And then usually a cord had at least, uh, or a whip had at least three cords to it. So you'd plait the cord and make three of those and then take the time to plait those together, tie your knots and all. And um, I don't know if you've been around uh, a lot of, uh, especially the California style uh, bridles and bits and things that uh, reinsmen, horsemen uh, use. Uh, They're intricately braided. And you don't just sit down, even with just a rope, and just in a matter of a few minutes just, pop it out there and you've got it done. It takes time. And so I can see Jesus angry, but he doesn't just fly off the handle. His is what you would call righteous indignation. He is angry on behalf of those who are being robbed, actually. And So he sits there, and I'm sure his disciples are watching him, and they may even be thinking, whoa, which one of us messed up, and what's he fixing to do to us? And not knowing what's fixing to come down, he sits there and he plaits, he puts the rosebud knot in the end, and and it may have a little frayed cat-and-nine-tail thing at the end. We, We don't know, but he made this whip. Don't know if it was like a quirt, a small one, or a bullwhip. You know, I'm not sure. But it, it was effective. And, and then we always get the idea from pictures, paintings, and things that Jesus was this little scrawny wimp. Long hair, beard, and, but kind of on the frail side. I don't think so. I don't, I don't have a photograph or anything. I can't prove it. But I, I just kind of get the idea that the guy was probably put together pretty good. And he wades into him. You don't just do that. Because Antonio's fortress is, is above the temple floor where they are monitoring what goes on down there all the time because the Jews were prone to argue and fight and cause disturbances and those kind of things. And they were ready at a moment's notice to send a hundred guys, Roman soldiers down, and break up anything going on. If you're just some little old wimpy guy, you're not going to do that with a hundred soldiers watching. 
you're, 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 you've got some ability here. And he goes in and he starts turning over their tables and using that whip right and left and drives them completely out of the temple. It said in verse 15, when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. That's my kind of guy, really. <laughs> uh, the, the, we think, well, I thought Jesus was supposed to be meek and mild and and soft-spoken. And uh, we, we're not told if he was yelling at them, get out of here or what. But uh, you have to make some noise if you're going to drive some sheep and cattle out of, out of a place. You, you don't just go, you know, yeah, make some noise, holler at them. And... You have to probably give instructions to all the people you're driving out. And there there could have well been any, it's been suggested anywhere from 50, 60 people that were doing this change in upwards of 200 in in there. Uh, it, was a, it was a crowd. It was a whole bunch. And he drove them out. And the soldiers... They didn't dare come down and intervene. I mean, there is some supernatural stuff going on here. What this also tells me is that when you're cheated out in public, when somebody mistreats you, Jesus may not be intervening right now. Today, he, he may kind of let it slide for a while, but they're not going to get away with it. They'll have to pay one of these days. And I believe you'll be able to see it on the day of judgment. I think you'll be able to witness that. You know, call you up and say, Hey, Joe, you're, come here. You remember when he cheated you? Well, yeah, I do. And then he'll turn to he, whoever this he is. We'll give an account for yourself. And if it's not very satisfactory, uh, you know, the scripture says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And that is a promise that he made to us. And um, I stand on that because I, I have been the, the subject of being cheated on uh, several times. And, and uh, I look at that and I think, well, uh, I don't even know exactly who the guy was or who the gal was or anything, but I do know that God's going to repay. And um, he cares about us. He uh, he really does. He cares about us. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away and do not make my father's house 
a house of merchandise. And I can't help when I read that. Of course, that was still under the law. That was in the temple. Totally different than today. But today we have houses of worship where we come to church. And we have pastors in churches who are on television, on the radio, and in houses of worship. And and I can't help but think of how many places that people are getting cheated in the name of God. And and people think they've come to worship God. And, and yet... Well, let me just put it this way. I graduated from Southwestern Seminary with a full degree. And I had to take a course while there on preaching. Had to take several, but this one in particular. And it was, if you're going to build a church, say, that was one example, there were many. If you're needing to gather funds to... uh, support a missionary, you know, the list goes on. I was taught how to put together a series of messages over a few weeks' time where I could manipulate the people into giving more than they normally would. I stayed with the course because I wanted to finish school. I was so angry at that. And as soon as I graduated, I filed all of that in a permanent way, threw it away, got rid of it. And I made a pledge to God, I will never, ever do that. And if I can boast on anything after pastoring that church in West Texas for 27 years, I never asked for money, not one time. And we never had a bill that went unpaid. We, uh, we did have to borrow some money to uh, build a building and pay for the land. But we got it paid for. And there wasn't a, a month went by that we didn't meet all of our needs. And and I stood on the premise that Pastor Chuck used to say and out in California at Calvary Coastal Mesa, where God guides, God provides. And a lot of times, uh, and, and this is the way Justin has done it here too, that uh, there'll be a need and same way out there, same way many of the Calvary Chapel pastors presently still do. If there is a need, congregation may not even know about it. it just take, the pastor takes it straight to God and say, God, you know, we have this need. We need so much money. And then just stand back in, in amazement at what he does that week and look at what comes in either the mail or the tithing box, and how many times it meets to the penny whatever that need was. Amazing. Amazing. And that does several things for a pastor. 
It lets you know that if God doesn't meet that need, that it's very black and white, God doesn't want you to do that. You know, you're saying, oh, Lord, we have to have this money to send this missionary over to, you know, Nigeria somewhere, and and they need X amount of dollars in order to go, and he's going to present Jesus, and he's going to do this, and he's going to do that. And the money's not there. It's obvious God didn't want him to go. Maybe he does, but not right now. And the money will come in two months from now, designated for that purpose. But then you've prayed, and the money is there to the penny. And pretty clear answer from God. And this business of fleecing the flock, you know, uh, shearing the sheep, you know, that's not of God. And it's not of God to make you feel guilty that you have to give. No, you give freely you, uh, because you love the Lord. God loves a cheerful giver. Well, that's all kind of a sideline on what was going on there. This religious people fleecing the people and making it look like it's God. And God had nothing to do with it. Nothing. And um, sad to say it happens in the church. Verse 17, And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Quoting Psalm 69, verse 9. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? In other words, you've come in, you've torn everything up. What, what kind of sign do you give us that you're somebody special or uh, by what authority do you do this? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And, and that was true. Herod uh, was uh, responsible, at least toward the end, of rebuilding this temple. And they had been working on it uh, all of these years, these 46 years. So they're mocking him now and saying, you think you can build this thing in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus was saying, destroy this temple, this, this body of mine. You crucify it, you bury it, you do whatever, and in three days I'll, uh, I'll raise it up. And the disciples uh, didn't understand that on that day. It was almost three years before they come to understand this. Verse 22, Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. 
Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Uh, That's a sad testimony from Jesus about the condition of the heart of man. That he didn't commit himself to any of them at that time. Even though it says they believed. And see, there is a difference in, in how you believe. You can see something and believe and say, yeah, I, I believe that happened. Or you can believe committing yourself to it. You can see all the facts about who Jesus is. You can see, uh, hear the stories and know all the truth and believe it. Uh, Jesus even said the, the demons believe. They, they see and believe. But they don't believe unto a commitment. And the commitment I'm talking about is is seeing the truth of who Jesus is and knowing in your heart that you're a sinner going to hell. And when you see Jesus, you know that he is the only thing that can take care of your sin. You recognize that. And believing in him, you ask him, you you receive him to come into your heart, into your life. And and you you say, I believe in you. I ask you to come in to my heart. Cleanse me. Wash me. Make me clean from all of my sin. And when he when he does that, uh that is what is being referred to and we'll look at this uh, next week in chapter 3 with Nicodemus Uh, that's when you're born again